And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Welcome everyone to Podcast 62. Hope you are all having a wonderful February so far and that you are well on your way to a good March. As for us, well, Uncle Frank has shingles, but that's not stopping the podcast. Uncle Frank is uh, here via phone. Uncle Frank, tell us in your shingly way what's on the show tonight. Well, to start with, we're going to entangle the mysteries of the great Aquahead Mavuli. Then we'll talk about our adventures with Paul Rubens at his opening night of the 35th anniversary tour of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. After that, of course, we have another reading of a horrifying story and more stuff. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's, Let's get, get started. started. Do you indeed think that there is life on other planets? Do you think there's life on other planets? Oh, I don't know. Would you like to think about it for a second? Oh, not really. <laughs> Tell me, do you think there is life on other planets? Well, I'm not quite yes. sure, but I suppose there would be. No, he seems definite. Yeah. He seems definitely. Definite. How do you see this life and where? Oh, I've seen a flying saucer. You've seen one? Yes, when definitely. At Lane Cove. When, when was this? 1953. You don't think this is a figment of your imagination? Mm, several other people with me saw it. You all had the same figment. What did it look like? It was standing up there, still. Just suspended in space? With colours coming out of it. Flat or on its side? It was around. And you think this was sent from another planet, do you? I really do. Well, where else would it come from? Mm-hmm. Do you think there's life on other planets? Oh, well, I wouldn't um, like to even discuss that. But Why not? <laughs> it's a debatable point, I suppose. What do you think yourself? You must have a, a, um, an opinion here. Well, definitely not. Not? Not. Well, what, what leads you to say that? Scientific investigation or...? Well, uh, only working off the uh, theory of the um, Bible. Well, there's only one world, isn't there? And do you think that can stand up to present scientific investigation? This, the, the, oh, I this think it could. Creed. Do you think so? I think it could. As far as the universe goes? Mm-hmm. Definitely so. In your opinion, do you think there is life on other planets? No, I hope not. Why, why do you hope not? Because they'd be frozen to death. Do you think there is life on other planets? No, I'm uh, German. Yes, definitely. Why? Yes. What sort of life do you see up there? A uh, vegetable. <laughs> Do I think there's life on no. other planets? No. Why not? Oh, I don't know. I you don't think we'll just... find anything when eventually we land on Venus? I don't think we'll find life. What we do you might think we'll find, find very interesting things, though. Such as? 
Oh, I couldn't really say what as I don't know. But I dare say it'll be something worth knowing. I think there is life on other planets. Uh, and how do you see this life? How do you visualise it yourself? Is it's it rather like, like queer-looking people. Queer-looking people? They're totally different from the people on Earth? I suppose so. Uh-huh. Would you like to get up there yourself and see it on Venus? Not particularly. Why not? Because I like it down here. I reckon there is. What makes you reckon that? Well, um, just, I don't know, it's not imagination, it's just what, uh... You're being led by scientific <laughs> discoveries, etc. Yes. Yeah, well, how do you see this life? If you think there is life up there, how do you see it? What form do you think it takes? Animal. Because we're animals, aren't we? Well, some of us. <laughs> yes. uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> I mean, how do you see them up there, though? Oh, I well, mean, the same as here? You think a land oh, on no, Venus would no. discover people like you? No. Totally different. It all depends what atmosphere they're living in. I think it'll be an animal form, but um, I don't think it'll be like us. You think that's a good thing? Well, I don't know. <laughs> would you like to get up there and find out for yourself? Definitely. Would you? To right I would. you volunteer for this? To right I would. I'd like to be the first woman in space. Do you think there is life on other planets? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't... Have you thought about this at all? No. Do you think there is life on other planets? Uh, no, French. Uh, no, no speak... Uh... No speak uh, English. French. Vous pensez qu'il y a autre vie uh, de, de les planètes? Mars yeah. and Venus. Oui. Oui? Oui. <laughs> C'est français, là? Où ça là-bas? Chez Mars? <laughs> Je sais pas. Do you want to think for it? There is life on other planets. Oh, I couldn't tell you. Hmm, I wouldn't have a notion, would I? Hey? I wouldn't have a notion. You haven't thought about this at all? Oh, I've thought about it, but uh, no, I wouldn't think there would be. Do you think it would be a good thing for the Earth if there, w if there was life indeed up there? On well, I suppose competition is pretty good at any time, isn't it? Tell you about my hometown, largest in Aloha State. I'll have to brag a little bit, but I really won't exaggerate. H O N O L U L U, Honolulu, Honolulu, that's my hometown. Honolulu, Honolulu, that's my hometown. Construction, the radio station on the scene, home of the swing and seven, Diamond Head, Everway, Malka to Mackay, Honolulu, Honolulu, oh, that's my hometown, Honolulu, Honolulu, oh, that's my hometown. Pineapple field, sugar cane, Howley's by the sea. Big hotels, the hula dance, the surf off Waikiki. It's recommended for a whole lifetime or a short stay. Honolulu, Honolulu, that's my hometown. Honolulu, Hawaii, that's my dark Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to mix things up a little bit. We have a guest with us, and a guest again. It's Mr. Jack Raymond Wilson, musician, magician, and uh, our oldest friend, actually. What would you do? You met me before kindergarten. Yeah, yeah. Jack remembers. <laughs> yes, I For did. For some reason, I was eating a hot dog at the time. Yes, you were. Anyway, <clears throat> you might remember him also because we had him here before uh, to talk about his life in the music business. 
and also the history of rock drummers. But tonight, uh, we're not going to talk about that at all. We're going to talk about a childhood memory of a statue, a sinister statue perhaps, or, or a hilarious statue. Jack, tell us the story again. Oh boy, let's see. I um, I have such a, a, a vivid memory of being adopted. It was not too far after that. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the same year. I get home and our house at the time was being under some form of construction, so it was pretty messy. But I just remember sitting on this Electrolux 1963 vacuum cleaner and thought I could ride it like a sleigh. And all of a sudden I look up and I see this statue that just really wigged me out, man. I mean, I loved monsters like you couldn't believe, but I was just like, what is that? And what is it doing there? And my dad pulls this thing down and he says, well, you know, this is this used to be somebody in Hawaii that was a very big DJ at one time. And um, his name is Jay Akohead Populi. And I probably didn't pronounce that perfect, but but it, 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 from what I hear, if you if you hear this guy's show, it, it nothing had to be perfect because he was so full of energy. It, it's hilarious. Oh. It's hilarious that that name that name always oh. stuck with me too. Yeah, and uh, I never knew who he was because you forgot all the details about him when well, you talked to me about it. This, well, the thing is, you know, the, the thing back to the scared of the statue thing that really freaked me out is one, it was a very dark statue, so I thought it was bronze. It had an antiquing thing to it, and then, and then all of a sudden, the way they did it, because they did it with that 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 style where you got the head giant, the little tiny body yeah, caricature yeah. kind yeah. of thing, and for some reason that just like flipped me out, and and it's crazy because this is coming from a kid who was in love with Ron Rand Dotty glow in the dark skulls and collected them from Disneyland. So here I am collecting monster toys and skulls, but yet this normal statue is scaring me, and my dad, you know, when he pulled it down explaining it really let me realize, wow, you know, this guy had a lot of character. If you ever get to see him, I'm even dying to see him myself. Yeah, and what happened to the statue? You know, I'm going to find out about that. And it's, see it, if your sister still has yeah, it. Yeah, but we did have it for a long time. It broke one time, and I remember my dad right in front of me fixing it with classic Elmer's glue. And That's when you found out it was plastic. Yeah, and you because know, it did look bronze, you know. But, but it, it, it looked very old. And I just remember that name, as silly as I like to get, man. Oh, yeah. I just well, love we to were, say it, you know. We never could figure out exactly what was up about him. And we never did until the internet came up. And then I looked him up out of the blue. And it was like, oh, you find out he's this big disc jockey in, in um, Hawaii. And we had him on the SISG Hall of Fame earlier. But we never really told the full story. And so tonight we have that. It's our time to praise Aku. Yeah. So let's start with his name. Aku is like a, it's a skipjack tuna, and it's a kind of a local favorite in Hawaii. And so, and Papule is sort of crazy. So his name is sort of J Crazy Fishhead. Yeah, or <laughs> right. Crazy Tuna. Yeah, Lots of Crazy things. Tuna. Yeah. And and uh, and his um, he was a big personality in Hawaii, but not just any personality. He was the highest. Um, had the highest ratings in the Hawaiian area. Well, I think maybe in the country because he had a 30.1 share of the drivers uh, you know, in traffic. And then he had a 25.9 share of the people at home. This is just a morning show in Hawaii. That's 117,000 people in the Hawaiian islands where some of them you know, couldn't even hear him. So it was mostly Honolulu. He was simulcast in Maui. That was a huge market. He used to say there's only two kinds of Hawaiians. 
there were the ones that listened to Aku and the ones that listened to Aku but wouldn't admit it. <laughs> and so yeah. he wasn't a very humble uh, character, but he was a character. You know, physically, well, Jack knows what he looks like because he was kind of like his caricature. Yeah. He had a large head and a very strong profile, which means, you know, big forehead and big nose. And that's where he got the fish head um, name. But the Papuli crazy part, that comes from his persona. He was really brash. He was really funny. He was unpredictable. He was off and off color. He liked to skewer the foibles, you know, of the world and rile up people. He's kind of like a, he was like a shock jock before they even oh, had yeah, that term. Yeah, um, I've heard him described as a combination of Rush Limbaugh and Paul Harvey, but he was less political than that and more wacky, entertaining. But he did, uh, he was conservative in his politics and, and would bring that up at his show. He had a strange style, you know, for the, being in Hawaii. He used Yiddish jokes all the time and phrases, and he would punctuate. Um, you know, because he started doing this like in the late 40s, and, and so it was like new back then. He would he would be the one who would punctuate things with bells and whistles and and uh, buzzers and things. And then he would give the time um, really often, like every 10 minutes or so. It is now 10 a.m. And, oh, that's and great. now it's 10. I think that Saturday Night Live whole, uh, whole time channel came from him. Oh, and he would do that. Enough. So that for one reason he did it is just so people would know when they're listening to his show what time it was, they're getting ready for work. Right. And then another reason, so maybe they would tune into him so they wouldn't look at a clock, they would know the time from him. Cause they might not add electricity on the whole island, too. And they, you know, they yeah. didn't have clocks in all the cars back yeah. then. Well, you know, I hate the fact that a lot of times when you're listening to the radio, me especially, they don't tell a time. Yeah. And, like, I'm tired. Well, <laughs> and, and the crazy part is that sometimes you screw around and give the wrong time to get people all nervous and make them think they're late for work. Oh, great. He yeah. would never do it to make them late, but he'd make them nervous about it. He was really informal. He'd like a T-shirt or a Hawaiian shirt, cut off jeans and bare feet, and he'd have his feet all the time. Up on the console or the oh, desk. Oh, that's great. That's great. One time, well, there's for a few years this radio station, he was actually broadcasting from this uh, treehouse that was in the middle of the international market. And uh, it would be up there. It had this sign on it that says, the only uh, uh, radio station up a tree. And that's that, that international market, by the way, that was uh, Don Beach place. He, you know, Don the Beachcomber, he did famous in Hollywood. Heck yeah. He'd been a bootlegger. And then oh, yeah. when, oh, okay. when it became yeah. legal, he opened up his bar. We even had a place here, you know, called Don the Beachcombers. Well, it was probably one of his yeah. because he... Trade Winds was, I think, was what took it over or, or took he, trade um, over. He would um, open up, they became a bar and a restaurant, and eventually his wife ran them. But... In the divorce, after the divorce, eventually he gave control over to the wife. She kind of rented anyway. And one of the things was he couldn't build uh, a Don the Beachcomber in the United States. But Hawaii was, was a territory. So he went over there and he built this whole great um, international market, which was a bunch of kiosks with stores in it. There were thatch huts and, you know, had all these different... Uh, bars and tea houses and a Don the Beachcomber there. Oh, yeah. Anyway, the tree in the middle of that, he uses his office. Oh, and that's yeah. where Aku took over later, you know, for the radio station. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Uh, Aku, by the way, he started out as a violinist, and he's a pretty good one. And so when he started getting popular, which was already the early 50s in, in uh, Hawaii, he um, 
decided to have for promotion to have a open his own label. So he had Aku Records. Yeah. And he had for the label he had his um, and there's a new Aku Records. Oh, I was app. like, because I think they it, have that. It's yeah. a modern one. Oh, okay. It has different kind of music. It doesn't have anything it. to do with him. No. no. Okay, yeah. yeah. That is strange, though. I mean, what, you know. Yeah, because when I look it up on the internet, that's what I keep getting is the new one. Yeah. But he had his caricature just like the statue. Yeah. Uh, on the, as the label, as the logo. Oh, that's great. And yeah. uh, he, you know, at first it was only him on these records, so they weren't selling very good. Uh, although he's a great violinist and he's he's a good singer. But anyway, he found this guy uh, who he convinced this guy. It was Alfred Alpaca, and he was a pretty um, up and coming guy. He was a singer. He was big for standards and stuff. And then the Hapa Howley music, which is pretty much what we think of Hawaiian music, which is all English words with a little bit of Hawaiian or maybe fake Hawaiian. It's kind of like Hawaiian culture, everything we know. And they, they take. The music style for whatever's popular at the time. This guy was pretty big. He had already gone up and down the coast of California, yeah. and he got signed at Decca Records. But he was still small potatoes uh, on the label comparatively. But anyway, Aku convinced him because he was a good salesman to be on the records. And then of course the sales went up because he was good. And uh, anyway, he was backed up by the Moana Serenaders. And so anyway, we're going to play the example of that right now. This is, uh, I don't know if it was exactly a hit, but it's one of his better ones, and it's Princess Papule. This is J. Aku Hit Papule, ladies and gentlemen. Alfred Apaka and the boys are here to sing you a song about my mother. What's her name? The Princess Papule, a dirty papaya. She loves to give them away. That's my ma. For all of the neighbors, they say. What do they say? Huh? Oh, me, oh, my, you really... Try a little piece of the princess Papuli's papaya. Zazu, 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 zazu. Tell them some more, fellas. Princess Papuli, a truly unruly, and pass out papayas each day. Well, what is she then? For all of the neighbors, they say. Uh huh. She may give the fruit, but she holds on to the root. And so she has the fruit and the root to boot. Now tell him what happened. Now one bright Sunday afternoon. Where was that, Albert? It was field day and her papaya grow. Did you get there in time? But I reached the gate an hour too late. The customers were lined up in drawers. And that's what drove her nuts. Let be a warning. Go early in the morning. And if it's true, you'll never rue the day. The princess papooling, a plenty papaya. She loves to give them away. I mean papaya. She loves to give them away. Hey, Aqua, didn't she used to beat you over the head with a hammer? Yeah, but she only did that because it felt so good when she stopped. <laughs> What's the fishing pole for, Aqua? The fishing pole? I'm going fishing. You got worm? Yeah, but I'm going anyway. Hey, Aqua, huh? you the kind. Asamara you. Asamara you. No, you Asamara. No, Asamara you, Asamara me. You Asamara. It was field day and her papaya grow. But I reached the gate an hour too late. 
the customers were lined up in droves. So let this be a warning. Go early in the morning, and if the stew you never rule the day. The princess put food to play with her pie. She loves to give them away. She takes in laundry. She loves to give them away. She no charge nothing. She loves to give them away. She's from Kahala. She loves to give them away. That was Aku on the fiddle there, uh, which is pretty nice, as you can see. And, and also, of course, Alfred, and he was on a ukulele with vocals. And Jacob Kaliakpola, he was a steel guitar. And Jimmy Kamaka Pawiki, he was on the bass. Then Steppy Durego, he was on the guitar. And they were the backup guys that Alfred had all this time going up to the down the coast. Uh, and music was pretty important to uh, Aku, too, on his show. Because on all his shows... They wouldn't just let you do talk like now. You had to play records in between. Right. So he would play music, and he would just play whatever he wanted, which was mainly middle of the road, easy listening. And later on, it was anything between like the Beatles to um, Broadway tunes or oh, opera. Man. He did a lot of 40s stuff because that was his music that he liked. you got to love the names of the guys in that, man. That's oh, yeah. Well, they were all oh, real Hawaiians. That's hilarious. Then he had, right. um, he would always play Hawaiian five O's. Uh, you know, ba 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 And he was, he, when he got big, he was actually on Hawaii Five O about oh, five times. Man. And he married this woman who, see that. who was a big singer, and she was on like seven times. So, like, everybody that was kind of big, right. you know, Don Ho, of course, oh, sure, would yeah. end up on that show. But anyway, he got on there. I want to go back now and shovel through those on reels. Yes, to see the episodes. <laughs> His show, when he was talking, was there was commentary and there was interesting facts and stories. And he would take calls from the audience, which at the time, in the 50s, um, it was the first in Hawaii, I'm not sure in the whole country, to take live calls. It was kind of new, anyways, yeah. yeah. And uh, he could kind of be rude to the callers. Oh, 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 sure. And the kids, because he's like he's like Howard Stern or whatever. Oh. And, you know, sometimes he would be exasperated with the people, but sometimes they were just thin-skinned, and he would, you know, he, he could egg them on to cause oh, trouble. Oh, man, that's Because so like he all of needle them, them. Needle. like all of them, his audience is really the people who don't call him. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it wasn't really a call-in show either. And uh-huh. he had other things on it, like The Chicken Man, oh, which great. was a comedy uh, radio drama back then. In the late fifties, then it's I get maybe the sixties when he had that, and a story time, which I think kids listened to that, which is weird because some of the other stuff was off color. He did, and then he did the news, and he, it was a show called The Coconut Wireless, <laughs> and it was the traffic, and it was the the news, and he'd always do pulling pranks during this during the news show or different other announcements. One time he announced that the state of Hawaii, I mean, the Hawaii was becoming a state, and that was eight years before it was. Wow. And and he had a bunch of people convinced, and then he announced at tax time that um, that the uh, they were now um, suspending taxes on the islands, and they were going to give refunds back, and people were calling the IRS. And... Um, it was before you could get in trouble for saying stuff uh, like no, that. No, yeah. he got in trouble, oh, okay. actually. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, um, he would manage to squeak out of the things, <laughs> but still, I mean, he had lawsuits against him too. He, he another time he told that the Bank of Hawaii was selling money at half price. He'd go down there. I think that was part of a commercial. Most of his gags were on April Fool's Day, and after people started knowing him, his regular listeners, you know, would know. But 
it was just like War of the Worlds. The people that just tuned in and maybe didn't know that, they're the ones that would uh, believe this stuff and get all pissed off, especially back then because people believe the radio. It's not. Yeah, right. It wasn't. His commercials were crazy too because he would either change the script or he'd make up new ones, and it was always like to kind of make fun of the product. One time he had this um, car dealership. And uh, he would go, see the assortment of fine used cars at Lippy's used car lot. Lippy stands squarely behind each vehicle so we can help push it out of the, into the street. Oh, man. <laughs> so, and sometimes the people, you know, right. were mad. And most of the time, like, look, he's the biggest guy around. So you yeah, know, people really. are going to know my name. They're going to know it's not like that. Yeah, absolutely. But he did get sued several times. <laughs> but he could afford it because he was the highest paid radio guy, I think, in the country at the time. Wow. And they're, they bandy about all these different amounts. And the highest I've heard is 250000 a year. And wow. radio doesn't pay nothing. So that's amazing. I mean, even now it pays nothing. And at that oh, point, that really uh -huh. at that point, he had a nice house. He had a sports car. Oh, and he paid uh, four riders, like 2500 a month for jokes. Because he's like, well, you know, as he gets bigger, I need to have more jokes. Can't yeah. just have the ones I came in with. So, anyway, how did he get that big in the first place? How did he get to the point where he could just ask for any amount of money? Well, right now, we're going to play another violin uh, solo by him. Uh, of course, on one of his records, who, by the way, he would play his records on his radio station. Um, and then we're going to come back and we're kind of go into the history of Akko and how he built himself up to the big man he became.
See, as you can see, he really was a good violin player. He was kind of amazing. Um, so anyway, Aku had his real name that he was born with was Herschel Lieb Hohenstein. He was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1917. And then he changed his name to Harold Lewis Hohenstein. And then he finally legal changed it to Hal Lewis. So he was always under a pseudonym. He never had a real name mm -hmm. going on. He, I, I don't know much about his childhood, what he did, if his parents were in the business. and But he, he studied violin, and that's that really what he did. And you said that he used to get his humor, so I'm assuming that he yeah, was... Yeah, he was from a Jewish family yeah, okay. in that neighborhood and that. And it was from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So he was more Brooklyn than anything else. But anyway, in the 1940s, he found himself in San Francisco, and he was playing the fiddle in a country western band. Jack knows how that is, whenever oh, yeah. he can make the money. Great. Oh, and yeah. uh, he'd do a lot of pickup jobs everywhere, too. And that uh, country band had a 15-minute show at KYA in San Francisco. And the show was sponsored by a mattress company. <laughs> and uh, Akko used to sing and talk during the show as well, even though it was 15 minutes. He got some play, and the mattress guy heard him and thought, he's got a great voice. So he said, I want you to do my commercials, paid him extra. You know, when we have my mattress commercial during the show, I want you to be the guy that does it. And then that led to a gig um, at the radio station on the weekend. So he started doing radio there, oh. and he lasted a little bit. But um, by the end of the war... The guys started to uh, move away, and the other guys in the band, they were all going to go to Hollywood to seek their fortune. But Aku decided to try his luck in Hawaii. So he got a job on the ship, the Matsonia, and he worked his way across to Hawaii, playing the violin in the band there. And then he got to Honolulu. So he decided, he must have been a showman way back, because he decided he was going to do this cabaret act, and he would play the violin and tell jokes, kind of like Jack Benny. Yeah. Well, it didn't go over at all. <laughs> so pretty soon he's sleeping on the beach in Waikiki. Because he's yeah. terrible or it was just no. not for Hawaiian audiences? You know, and you know, your first 10,000 gigs are going to be terrible. Yeah, right. <laughs> so or whatever, yeah. he got a, a job actually after that at KM, uh, no, KGMB, big, a radio station there. But two months later, he got fired for insubordination because he's a troublemaker. <laughs> oh, no, so, that's classic. So there he was back <laughs> on the beach again and he was writing... Um, Pros for the Longshoreman's uh, Warehouse Union. <laughs> oh, I don't know what he was doing in that. And then he would, but he did start writing jokes for Hilo Hattie, and that that's a lady. I don't know if people know her now, but she was big and she was an actress and a comedian. She did hula dancing. She had albums and she was had a, a gig at the Tapa House, which is at the big hotel there in Hawaii. That's great. I wonder if that's still. That'd be interesting. The hotel is still there, but it's been rebuilt. Anyway, then, though, he finally got a job at KPOA AM, and that's kind of where he became Akko. He always told the story that the origin of his, of his name was because a listener got angry one time because he read the wrong time and called him an Akko head. But um, I was looking through at, at some of the, the son of the guy who was the um, sales manager, and he had another story. He said that, they, that they was really contrived, that when he got there, when Akko got there, they were going like, how are we going to promote you? You're this big New York guy. You know, you do crazy stuff. You got, we got to have a persona. There's a Hawaiian audience here. So they got drunk one night, and they went over all the different stuff. They said, hey, you've got this big old head and this weird profile. Let's call you Fish Head. We'll yeah. Call you Aqua yeah. Head. 
and then you're going to be crazy, so papule, and then we'll put the J in the front so it sounds pretentious. And oh, it's then, perfect. So that, that's when it was born, J. Akohei Kapuli. And he did pretty good. I mean, he started building up an audience right away. I mean, nobody had done what he did because, like I said, he was way ahead of his time, sort of becoming the shock talk. Oh, and that would totally guy. stand out, yeah, back then. And yeah. Sorius, um, he was in charge of promoting him, but he was also pro um, in charge of keeping him in check. <laughs> And so, that was his hardest job. Because yeah. they never knew. He had to listen, like, we got to watch out. We're going to get thrown out the air. <laughs> and I don't know if it was now or soon after, but Aku did this thing that was unique at the time, or at least rare. He started brokering his own show. He would buy time on the radio show for his show, <clears throat> and then he would sell his own ads. Okay. And so he got the kept the profit, plus he had a freedom because... You know, he had to deal with the sponsors. The radio station, maybe if he went too far and it might get him in trouble, but it was him that would be sued. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. And so he started making lots of money, and it allowed him to grow and be able to try new things without having him yeah, Anybody in. say, no, that's not a good idea or whatever. Like, yeah. nope, I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he found that's out whether it's a good idea. The that's boss. great. That's great. So by the time the FCC made it illegal to broker stuff in the late 50s, he had become so popular, he had leverage. So he could name his price yeah. at that point. So you couldn't buy time and then resell it. It's like power or something. You can't, I don't, I guess they, so. They, they made it a rule probably that you, you couldn't, yeah, that you couldn't resell radio Air time. time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you could, yeah, because you have to get it from the FCC. <clears throat> so, oh, yeah. That anyway, exactly. he jumped around a lot from different radio stations through the 50s and early 60s. Uh, he was at this KHUH station where in 1957 they did a publicity stunt where the sky to San Francisco, Don Sherwood, they traded places. So Aku was over there doing his crazy stuff all of a sudden. Don Sherwood was here. and For a week or two or how long? Uh, yeah, it was for two weeks. <laughs> and, and then in 1960, he was at KORL and that was the old KPOA. And that's where he was up in a treehouse. Oh, that's so cool. And it was over at 760 KGU. And that's so anyway, cool. finally, uh, KGMB, which he got thrown out of, they come calling. And that must have been sweet because he's like, oh, you want me, huh? All right, I'll come back. He made him give him a four and a half year contract yeah. at $2 million. <laughs> that oh, was wow. like yeah. impossible. Yeah. And it's a Hawaiian market. They don't have that many people. Yeah. So it was huge. And then I guess they kept extending the contract. Man. Oh, yeah, so yeah. that's how he became the big man on campus. And there was this, in 1968, this Billboard magazine article about Aku. And they were saying at the time that the other disc jockeys at the uh, station would take their cue from Aku. Like he had this power. And he would go every two weeks and come up, find records that he liked and thought were good, and he'd make a stack of 300 records, and the DJs would pick from that. And that's what they would play. And they would only play them for 30 days and then never again, ever. Oh, well. <laughs> that was like, the policy. That's like a buddy of mine at work. He gets tired of music, even the best, whatever. Really quick? Really quick. He'll be on it and then off. That's it. That's probably his personality. That's well, he kind of wanted it for other people because his show, he'd play 40 stuff. I mean, come on. And he would play Y Five O all the time. I love it. Well, and then maybe he's, it wouldn't burn out his show or something. I don't know. He said also that they had this policy where they would go, you would not do music after music or talk after talk. You would do music, 
then talk, then music. It would be like music, then a commercial, then more music, and and that after every commercial they do a burp, jeep or something, so you know the commercial was over. But I don't know, thinking about it now, if any of this stuff is true, because he just would make up stuff. So this might be some convoluted thing that he thought it was funny that someone would go to all this trouble at a radio station when he was just dealing with his own thing and nothing else. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe. But sometimes people like you know think that they know the way that things are supposed to be done, and then they dictate to everybody else. I guess. <laughs> maybe he was that big. Yeah. I don't know if he would care that much. About yeah, right. Else. Who knows? That's what I'm gathering. Yeah, that he probably yeah. You never knew with him. I mean, it's a, it's a positive kind of thing, you know, because he's done it so... He did a lot of personal appearances over the years, and he would broadcast from you know remote locations all over the islands, and and he would do different events like he did the Papuli Ball, which is the Waikiki Surf Club, which he was a charter member of, and oh, just man. different stuff. Even like school events, he started becoming a big fixture. He just like this is part of Hawaii. Just you know. <clears throat> that's great, and. You know, I said he could be kind of edgy and, and rude on his show, but when he was in person, he was more personable. He wouldn't be rude to the kids or anything. Right, and if he was doing a charity thing, probably. Well, fine, but yeah. he still would say crazy stuff, but it, it wouldn't be as I, I'm derogatory about the people. That, that was his reliance then. Yeah, that's. I wonder if my sister probably saw him then, and I just well, maybe because she was Cause little. She went. Yeah, I remember yeah. going to the airport in LAX to take her there in 1974. You know, well, he would have been oh, there. Yeah. I, of course, I was young and you know didn't want to sit still for too long, so I didn't listen to her trip at all. But <laughs> he, he was supportive of people. That there's one guy, Mike Buck, who's now a big talk um, radio guy. And he's been on there now longer than Aku. Really? Well, he said that when he was a kid, he was just like an MC at some grammar school thing, and Aku was there because he's at like different events. And he went and told that guy's dad, Mike's dad, like, "Your son should be on radio. He's got a great voice." And it got him all inspired, and then he ended up being on radio. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. There was another uh -huh. guy that used to work over there when Aku was there, and he said Aku would go through the halls, and he'd tell him all these vaudeville jokes, and he would laugh, and Aku would be, like, surprised. Like, that's 120 years old, son. What's the matter with you? Goes, ah. Well, I never heard it before, <laughs> so it was funny to me. I'm trying to think of some of the other stories, but I hate to come to an ending. I know, it's so interesting. nothing lasts forever, but unfortunately... Aka got lung cancer at the end. And I guess he wanted to go out with one large, big prank. So in the week before Easter in 1983, he started hyping up this Easter parade. How it was going to be so great, and Tom Selleck, Magnum P.I. was going to be there, and some of the cast members from Hill Street Blues. Oh, man. And it was going to be so great, and it was going to be on Good Friday. Well, Good Friday was also happened to be April 1st. <laughs> And so when it comes to the day, he doubles down. He gets a reel-to-reel, -reel and he starts playing parades. That's stuff, wild. And he gets these two other guys to do color commentary with them. Oh, man. And he's saying, oh, look at there's this guy. Magna P.I. is coming down the way. <laughs> and um, people show up <laughs> at the place. So it did ha indeed happen, the, the parade. No, really. there was no, no, no parade. He just started, he, he MC'd started, the parade. Yes, he made it up like a radio show. And a couple thousand wow. people showed up along the way. And some of them thought it was funny. They even called up and said, Akko, you got me again. But more people oh, called up and said, great. I was waiting there for hours. That's brilliant. And then I the police it. were all angry. It I was a it. huge hoopla. He probably would have got in big trouble, except for two months later he died. <laughs> so oh, he God. got out of all of it. Well, may his soul laugh and rest in peace. Man. And he left. He had a message uh, to be read. And it was kind of funny. I don't know if he meant to, but he sort of like 
was doing his own eulogy, like oh, you should really? all mourn for me because. And, <laughs> but it really, I mean, I he knew he probably he, he had was to doing a hawk, though. He was like, folks, I wish I could tell you, and make you understand how much I loved you all these years, and I want wow. to thank you for everything. So, and that's how the great Aku went out. No, that's <laughs> great, though. That's great. And we never thought. That it would so much would come out of that yeah. statue that you had. Oh, and, and, in and, the garage. And, yeah, <laughs> but, but I'm not gonna lie to you guys. Like I dwelled on that statue a lot. Well, there you like, go. It was like I just was so interesting to me, you know, the whole thing. Well, anyway, we're gonna go out with one of Aku's records. Uh, this is old Aku, and then um, Alfred again. It's sure been an honor being here, gentlemen. And thank you for having well, me. Thank you. And here we go out with the song. I will Hello everybody, 
Well, here we are again on the four corners of suburbia to ask unsuspecting passers-by a question or two. Uh, the question today, a homely one, should husbands help with the weekend housework? Do you think that husbands should help with the weekend housework? Yes, definitely. Oh. Why do you say that? Because oh, I do a bit myself. Oh. Much? Oh, a fair bit. Cook? Yes, cook. Wash up? Wash up. Maybe you'd be better off as a bachelor doing all your own work. Yeah, I would be. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Ah. Yeah, instead of them going out. Have you been married long? Yes, a good many years. <laughs> How many years? Do you remember? You me? Oh, I'm a widow. My wife's dead. Not a ten years ago. Eleven years ago. Yes, I used to help her the weekend. Used to work hard. Come home. Used to help her Saturdays and Sundays. Do all the work. Quite happy to do that. Yes, I was. Both should always give a woman a spell. <laughs> How about Dad having a rest too? Because I suppose he's been working all the week. No, he hasn't. He hasn't worked for eight years. <laughs> should they? It all depends. Well, I'm going to say, if you're working all the week, well, I should say not. But if the wife is sick or anything like that, well, I think they should. Are you married? I am. So it comes the weekend and your wife as well, you don't do any work, so that. Oh, well, I have plenty of other work to do outside, like in the gardening and all that sort of thing. Do you think that husbands yes. should help uh, their wives with weekend housework? Yes, I think they should. It's just natural. Are you married? No, I'm single, but I uh, do all the housework myself. I live on my own. Do you cook? Well, uh, I don't eat very much. I cook now and again. Do you sew and mend and that kind of thing? Oh, yes, the best I can do. Seeing uh, I've been out of work about two and a half months. <laughs> Oh, good Lord, no. No, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't say that. I don't oh, think I should do why that. Why that? Well, poor old man, he works too hard to wives and got nothing to do. Do you think that husbands should help with the house, housework at the weekends? Well, that all depends. If the wife goes to work through the week, I think she sh he should help. I see. Otherwise, I don't. I think he should relax a little bit. Are you married? I am. Does your husband go to work? I suppose he does. Oh, yes. And you? Yes. Oh, you both go to work? Yes. So your husband does cooking and that kind of thing at home? Oh yes, everything. <laughs> Definitely. My word I do, it's only fair that they should do that. You're married? Yes. Can't you see it in the face? <laughs> I thought you were eating banana. Go <laughs> ahead. You do a lot of weekend housework? Yes, I do it all. What does your wife do? Why do you do the housework? She rests. Do you think that husbands should help with the weekend housework? Uh, it all depends what chores they've got to do themselves. Oh. How's it organised at your house? Uh, well, I have four girls and uh, there's a lot of work to do. Oh, I guess that means that Dad can sit down most of the time. And No, he's out most of the time to keep out of my way. That's for I sure. I certainly do. Yeah. Yes, that's for sure. Why shouldn't they? Oh. You're married, are you? Yeah, well, that's just about. <laughs> what do you mean, just about? Well, uh, let's say in two weeks. Oh, I see. And you've got your mind made up already how you'll organise it. Oh, for sure. Is that your intended behind you, is it? That's for sure. Oh. Are you for sure? I mean, you know what she said. That's for sure, yes. Well, what do you think, I mean? Would you stand over there just a little bit? That's the idea. Do you yes. think that um, she's right in her views that you should help with the housework? My word. Why shouldn't we? Do you think oh, that husbands no. should help with the weekend housework? Yes, certainly. All the time. But mine doesn't.
Francis. Today is my birthday, and my father said I can have anything I want. Good for you and your father. I meant to do that. Well, Frank, we know it, but our audience may not know it, that this happens to be a very... Uh, very, very important anniversary to, to the SISG sure. uh, uh, faithful. And that is, it is the 35th anniversary of the making or the debut of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And of all places, Paul Rubens, who's, who played Pee-wee in the movie, decided to have his, his uh, kick off his opening uh, or his 35th anniversary tour right here in Ventura County at the Ventura Theater on January 24th. And Frank and I, Uncle Frank and I, were very lucky to have gotten tickets and gone to the thing and saw Paul Rubens and saw the movie. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit it was about it right now. It's great that he's doing this. I guess, is it he's going to write a book or a film project? I forget exactly. Or is this just... In general, he wanted to celebrate the 35th anniversary. So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely he is, uh, you know, he's celebrating the 35th anniversary. And, of course, it's a movie, so he wanted to have movie screenings all over the country. But also, he mentioned, you know, during his, because they played the movie, we reacted, and then there were some special things at the beginning. There was some actual footage of the of the premiere and with all these old, you know, 80 yeah, stars. Yeah, that was that, great. That they said there was going to be a special surprise before the show if you got there early, and that's what it was. It was from MTV. I guess they're the ones that did his opening. Yeah, so they uh, had the premiere them. of the show, right? They The Warner Brothers paid MTV, or I don't know if they owned, owned them or whatnot, but anyways, MTV had yeah, a Yeah, Warner Brothers could own it for all yeah. we know. They but had a whole show with MTV people and then Warner Brothers people <laughs> from had contracts with both. Any, any, you know, from David Lee Roth to uh, to um, a bunch of other bands. I oh think, yeah, like they White had Snake Fisher, and, of course, because they were in the movie. Yeah, they had the Bangles. They had uh, um, Steve Martin was there in a gold jacket. <laughs> Eddie Murphy, who didn't seem to know what to do with it. That's what I'm thinking. They. He just was in the Warner Brothers movies, and then he just got there like, what am I doing? <laughs> Miss Key was there. That they was great. The Bengals, of course, Danny Elfman, and I think some of them, Alice Oingo Cooper. Boingo. And, um, a bunch of stuff, the Fat Boys. Yeah. And then a bunch of people that, that were too young for me to even to recognize, you know, <laughs> some of them. And I didn't exactly put their names underneath, so I could never figure out. Because afterwards, they had, they had the... Um, the opening where Pee Wee would interview the people as they came in, and he was wearing his crown, that, like the one that was put on his head when he won the uh, all the bike race in France. Oh my gosh, and, my brain! And he said, anyway, he he spoke afterwards, and he said that that crown that he wore that day was the one that they used in Camelot with Richard Harris, and he kept it. Yes, for, <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have it for the premiere too. Yeah, so that was and a little. After the, after the premiere, they had 
a big party with a carnival, you know, Ferris wheels and games, and they interviewed all the different people. And when they came to interview Danny Elfman, he was saying, oh, I got my next album coming out. It was Dead Man's Party. <laughs> so it was a whole 80s time capsule. Yeah, they had the Bengals. They had uh, um, Alice Cooper, of all people. <laughs> they had, a, you had like a lot well, of people. The, the, he, at the end, he, ran off, he rode off on a lawn tractor into the distance. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mr. Mr. T was there because, you know, he's like, got you in my movie. Was, <laughs> he didn't even realize it seemed that he was he had anything in the movie, you know, even mentioned or whatever. He was just there. Yeah. Um, and so that was that fun. That was great. Yeah. And then, of course, they showed the movie, which... I mean, of course, I, I, you know, it's funny is I hadn't seen it. I don't think I'd ever seen it on the big screen, ever. And Oh, I know I haven't because I saw it in video the first time. So I never saw big, that, uh, TV's Big Adventure. And I, I can tell you, it, it sounds funny that you would say, oh, you know what you need to see on the big screen? Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But the truth is it is true because his facial expressions and just his acting from, they would have long scenes where he would go from one reaction to the next to the next and it was so good he was so good in that movie i already loved it and it was you could see the nuance in his facial expressions really well and how how much character he gave he gave his performance i i i really enjoyed it anyways you wouldn't think that the comedy would matter but it really was good on the big screen and of course everybody was there because they were fans so it was a great uh showing because oh, yeah, everybody you know everybody was you know, some people were yelling and out that, lines. and That Lynn Marie Stewart was there who played Missy Vaughn. Yeah, the most that was be- great. She must live somewhere in the area. And he was saying that he was, she was in every Kiwi project from the Groundling things to the last movie, you know, on Netflix, the Kiwi's. Uh, yeah, she was the most beautiful uh Lady in Puppetland, Miss Yvonne, right? And then yes. but in, in Pee Wee's <laughs> yes. Big Adventure, she was the nun that was like, I've had it, Jim. <laughs> you know? Yeah. This kid gives me she one more. She's been in more films and more substantial films than Paul Rubens has over the years. So, and they're dear friends, yeah. and she said he, he gave her a shout out in the audience, and that, so that was very fun. She had her family, it looked like, with her. And so that was really fun. And then afterwards, they had a question and answer period, and it was not an, a question and answer, was, answer period. Uh, for he, he kind of did it real loose, and he, he asked for people to write questions uh, via email or you know, before yeah. the show, and then there wasn't mics, there wasn't anything. He goes, look, I may answer some of these questions, I may not, and I may just tell you stories. Whatever he did, it was great. It, it, he, he, he was funny. Yeah. He was a little unsure of... Go ahead. He kept saying that, that uh, you know, well, you probably heard the story before, but I really didn't know all the behind the scenes or all that stuff before. I never paid attention so much. So all most of the stories, anyway, were new to me. Yeah, there was a lot of things uh, um, that he was talking about. And you could really see his personality because he came out as Paul Rubens, not as, as Pee Wee. And um, yeah. he was very gracious and very, he, he said several times, you guys, you got to, he goes, I was up there in the green room, watch, you know, listening, and everybody was laughing and you know saying lines. And he goes, "I wanted to cry several times." So, it was fun just to see him be, uh, you know, I, I think he he knows it, but it was fun because it was almost like we were helping him realize that he he did create something that was lasting, 
And I thought that 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 he was he might have been unsure of it, but afterwards I thought he was like, okay, this is going to be a success wherever I go because there'll be people. There's people that really like still like this movie 35 years later. And he had some great stuff about when they wrote the script of uh, him and Phil Hartman and that guy uh, Michael Varhol and the, how they got the book, you know, on screenwriting and pretty much went kept it straight, just like it said that you know, it was a 90-page script for 90 minutes, and at page 30, the bike gets lost, and 60 gets found. He was saying how Phil Hartman and the other guy would even put up cards with all the different beats on these uh, three-by-five cards on a, on a bulletin board, so yeah. they could look at all the little gags and see how it would work and pull stuff out that didn't work, and... Uh, and James knew the story, but I didn't even realize that his original script was going to be like a some kind of weird version of Pollyanna, because yeah, uh, that's his favorite movie, except that <laughs> she's all bitter at the end, which she kind of is actually in the real movie with Haley Mills. But Well, it turns that she's going to you know go to the hospital or whatever. It's not so bad, but yeah. No, but you pretty much know she's never walking again. She's... <laughs> She's got that. Hey, Don't Frank. I didn't know positive. that. You just you ruined my life Maybe right that's now. That's just my interpretation. I I, I honestly, uh, Frank, I thought she was going to walk the whole time. This right this second, I thought she was going to walk until you said that. I always you have to got watch it again. I always got that she was going to go there, and there was hope. Always. I always got. It. But anyway, <laughs> then it's just me. <laughs> Frank destroyed my whole childhood, but. Uh, the other thing was funny. He he told he said that they, he actually was really deathly afraid of snakes, and they decided to use real snakes when he saved them from the from the the pet store. I I think what they do they only did it twice, or how many times do you have to do that snake scene? I think he said I forget now, but he said that yeah he did it just enough, and then he was like I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the other thing is I wanted to say I took a screenwriting class one time and, and one of the assignments was to break down a film scene by scene and see how well it fit that formula that, the, that you were talking about from the it was a book written by a UCLA professor. Well, I unbeknownst to me, I didn't know this before, but I picked Pee Wee's Big Adventure and he's right. It literally matches the thing exactly. <laughs> and I didn't even realize, I mean, I just did it by accident, but I broke it down and we had to do scene by scene. I wrote a little blurb and I, I think I still have it. And that script, if you, if anybody ever wants to study a script exactly how they tell you to do it in film school, you know, that, that script is exactly beat for beat <laughs> what what they're talking about in the in that in that you know in the film i mean in the in the book rather in the in the in his class so it's that's funny it was interesting to, to hear that uh, paul rubens and tim burton both collected all the different weird stuff that was in inside of peewee's house at the beginning of the movie a lot of it came right out of paul rubens house and some of it came from tim burton and all of it came from, you know, their kind of taste and how they wanted it decorated. And, and then the front of the house. So I think just a few things came from them, but Tim Burton kept telling the prop guys, oh, no, we need more stuff. We need more. Come on. No, no, bring more stuff. Now bring some other statues here. And so they filled up that whole front yard full of stuff. And it was funny because, you know, he might not have had 
brought everything to the you know to the party so to speak to the you know to to decorate to the front yard or whatever but i think he said that he he has everything afterwards he took it all home <laughs> oh yeah he said he tried to hang on to all of it the bikes even you know uh, everyone knows the story about you know they had bicycles all over the place at warner brothers which i think at the time wasn't it was just called the uh burbank studios and now it's since then gone back to Warner Brothers. But anyway, and they had to put up Warner Brothers signs everywhere for the movie. But everyone was riding bikes. And he, I don't know if he was joking or really wanted one, but he was saying, when do I get my bike? And one day he walked up in front of where they were and they had an old bike. I forget which kind he said, but it was uh, it chained up to a thing that says Pee Wee Herman's <laughs> you know, place for bikes. And that's when it hit him. Oh wait a minute! We're writing the wrong movie. We just need to be about Pee Wee's bike, <laughs> and so that's where it's been off from there. And in the poster, the original poster, it's just that bike that he gave him with the tiger, you know, head and sound, and it goes in front of the handlebars, which he already had. And that's that's what's in the poster. It's not the bike that they finally built for him uh, for the movie. And I don't know. He did he say that there was two bikes? But one of the bikes is actually in the in in the in the museum in Hollywood, and the Smithsonian's trying to fight over it. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised how much uh, movies that Paul Rubens was in. You know, before Pee Wee, he, um, he you know he was in TV shows like in '79. He was in two episodes of Working Stiff. He was in Midnight Madness. He was. I never saw the movie, but he was the guy that ran the pinball arcade. He was in the Blues Brothers. I, I in retrospect, I knew that. And Cheech and Chong, couple movies, and then he was in this movie that nobody but me seen. Apparently, it's Pandemonium, and that was '82. And I loved that movie. And it's with Tommy Smothers as a Mountie, and Paul Rubens is his deputy, a very bitter deputy. And it's all about some murderer killing all these cheerleaders at a camp nearby, but it, it, they turn them into furniture. And there's one weird gag where Paul Rubens is upping up the, opening up a drawer and putting his hand inside and Tommy's mother's saying, hey, get out of that, stop that. It's like getting into her drawers or something. It's a very, it was funny, but a very weird movie. Um, anyway, all this stuff before he started doing, um, Pee-wee. you know, the Pee-wee show you know uh, at the, at the ground leagues and then the roxy later yeah, well, i he, guess maybe at the same time i don't know so he and he said that he did that show and then he had the hbo show and before they would give him a contract they wanted to see if he was a draw so he had to take the Wee herman show uh on a on a tour and he sold out all all the appointments or, you know, all the, all the events. So then they gave him, they signed him to a contract for a movie deal. Anyway, it was great. It was a great show. Um, it's going to be traveling around. I, I don't, they even added more shows, I think. Um, is it going to end in Oregon? Is that <laughs> the deal? No, that was just the next stop. He's still having to prove himself. <laughs> and then they gave him more events. <laughs> If you have any chance to do this, you should definitely go see it because it'll be even better. They're going to edit, I guess, the a lot of things and and make not, it go smoother. But I I'm kind of glad the, movie, we saw the first one, course. sort of raw. 
Yeah, I was glad we went to the first one because it was uh For one thing, they ran fun. over for the after the talk. I, I don't know, was, was it an hour by the end of the... Of the uh, little over an over, hour. I think, or... I think it was an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. He wanted to speak yeah, for an hour, so... but then he went over. And then he had a question. And I wasn't sick of it. He could have kept talking. I would have been happy with it. Oh, yeah. I would. I mean, they started at, you know, something like 8 or, or something, and, and uh, we didn't get out of there till past midnight, so... Yeah, and they were still uh, having you talk with him. Our nephew stayed there, Greg, his email from an earlier podcast. He stayed, and our sister and her husband, and, and for the, um, I don't know, they, they kept asking you to yell out stuff. What what do you think should be changed? What did you keep? What did you like? Et cetera. Uh, I didn't think I needed to advise him, so we left early. But Yeah, I mean, it was, went it was good, further. so... I, yeah, we we were, you know, he he was he was really good. So, I, I thought that he didn't need to change a thing. He 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 would keep on saying, "Oh well, you guys might not like this, or this might be boring to you." And then everything he said after every time he said that was not boring, and we liked it. So <laughs> we didn't have yeah, anything exactly. to say. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't need to do that. That was about the only thing. Yeah. He didn't yeah. No, but it was really good. Anyways, we thought it was such a great event that we would talk a little bit about it. And since it, then Pee-wee's won our most interesting character and our favorite cult classic yeah. in our March Madness, <laughs> we, we felt we were compelled to go see this, obviously. And uh, like Frank said before, if you guys get a chance, if it's in your town or anywhere close, go see it because it's very well worth it and it's, it's a real fun time. And uh, Pee-wee is still awesome and, and very entertaining. I am the luckiest boy in the world. My wish to fly has come true. I am the luckiest, the luckiest boy in the world. I'm so much luckier than you. Well, you did not. There are no secrets between father and son, Come on, Dad, except good. one. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that else can be put to good use. For lovers of the shocking, the suspenseful, 
And the terrifying comes a new classic, The Fury. Read my mind. Look, I don't know anything about reading minds, all right? The Fury, an experience in terror and suspense. They took my son away from me. They needed him, so they just took him. What the hell have you done to that boy? Oh, he's being treated like a prince. He is. He's royalty. Unique. Chinese don't have one. Soviets don't have one. In all the world, there's no one quite like Robin Sanza. Unless it's this girl. Who's Robin Sanza? He's a boy your age. With powers like yours. Powers that build. And build. Until they become the Fury. I want Gillian Belliver at the PSI facility tomorrow. It's a frightening power these people have. They can make anybody disappear anytime. She's a fake. I'm sending her home. I don't have time to waste on people. Don't do that to me, Doctor. Don't ever try lying to me. Gillian? Where is Robin now, Gillian? What's the matter, Robin? You know what's the matter. Stop! Gillian! That girl's taking my place after you poisoned me! The Fury is the power that holds the key to all power. Peter, I was lying before. Robin's not okay. He needs us now. For lovers of the shocking. Robin? The suspenseful. Please answer me. And the terrifying. Robin! Comes a new classic. 20th Century Fox presents a Frank Yablon's presentation. She recognize your old man? The Fury. <laughs> the Fury, a Brian De Palma film. An experience in terror and suspense. Cooking with gas. gas. We all cook better when we're cooking with gas. gas. Gas is so hot it's not on when it's off. It's the only way to cook. That's what I was taught. Now here's a fact you should have to know to pass. Nine out of ten chefs only cook with gas. Why is that, you say? Can I cook my way? The benefits we have to tell will really make your day. So listen, class, because we're going to go fast. Here are all of the reasons you should cook with gas. I cook with gas cause I'm in control The flame could be adjusted for the perfect shrimp creole The burn is not on when I think it's not I can simmer brown or boil in the same metal pot Cooking with gas, cooking with gas We all cook better when we're cooking with gas Gas is so hot, it's not on when it's off It's the only way to cook, that's, that's what, what we were taught I cook with gas cause the cost is much less than electricity Do you wanna take a guess? Well it's three times less in the east or west So remember those figures when it's time to take a test I cook with gas cause broiling so clean The flame consumes the smoke from grease, you know what I mean And when I bake a pie to put on the sill My self-cleaning oven takes care of any spill Cooking with gas 
cooking with gas. We all cook better when we're cooking with gas. Gas is so hot, it's not on when it's off. It's the only way to cook. That's, That's what, what we were taught. taught. I cook with gas because the stovetop's cool when you use electric ignition and natural gas fuel. In the summertime, it's especially fitting, so if you can't stand the heat, come into my kitchen. Cooking with gas. Cooking with gas. We all cook better when we're cooking with gas. Gas is so hot, it's not on when it's not. It's the only way to cook. That's, That's what, what we were taught. Cooking with gas. It's cooler. Cooking with gas. It's precise. Cooking with gas. It's cleaner. Cooking with gas. It's cheaper. Now that you found out why most chefs cook with gas, here's some safety rules to remember after class. Natural gas is fine. Natural gas is clean. clean. Safe cooking makes sense. We're not trying to be mean. mean. Safe cooking begins with range location. Avoid main traffic paths and also isolation. With no counter space nearby, don't let the curtains fly. Watch for open oven doors if you have a small fry. Cooking, cooking with gas. Cooking with gas. We can all cook safely when we're cooking with gas. Another safe practice when you're using your range is to judge very carefully the height of the flame. The bottom of the pan is all it should cover. Pan size should be right to prevent boil overs. And no long flowing sleeves or long loose hair. Don't get too close. You better beware. The same goes for foods or items made of plastic. If they're too near the stove, they could melt like magic. Cooking with gas. Cooking with gas. We can all cook safely when we're cooking with gas. Now if a fire should start and there's burning grease, never, never move the pan or throw water. Oh, please. Simply turn off the burner and cover the pan. Use a dry extinguisher or soda if you you can cooking with gas cooking with gas we can all cook safely when you're cooking with gas gas it's cooler we're cooking with gas it's precise we're cooking with gas it's cleaner we're cooking with gas it's cheaper Now here's one final rule you should remember from school. When you want to cook or bake, natural gas is the fuel. We're cooking with a gas. Cooking, a cooking, Wait. a cooking, it's all a does not always eat what is on the table. By the light of a tallow candle which had been placed on one end of a rough table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible, for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light on it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room darkening a number of faces and figures, for besides the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent, motionless, and the room being small, not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man, who lay on the table, face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his sides. He was dead. The man with the book was not reading aloud, and no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur. The dead man only was without expectation. From the blank darkness outside came in through the aperture that served for a window all the ever unfamiliar noises of night in the wilderness. The long, nameless note of a distant coyote, 
the stilly pulsing thrill of tireless insects in trees. Strange cries of night birds, so different from those of the birds of day. The drone of great blundering beetles and all that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seem always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. But nothing of all this was noted in that company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to idle interest in matters of no practical importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces, obvious even in the dim light of the single candle. They were evidently men of the vicinity, farmers and woodsmen. The person reading was a trifle different. One would have said of him that he was of the world, worldly, albeit there was that in his attire which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would hardly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin, and the hat that lay by him on the floor, he was the only one uncovered, was such that if one had considered it as an article of mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning. In countenance, the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness, though that he may have assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority, for he was a coroner. It was by virtue of his office that he had possession of the book in which he was reading. It had been found among the dead man's effects in his cabin, where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into his breast pocket. At that moment, the door was pushed open and a young man entered. He clearly was not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad as those who dwell in cities. His clothing was dusty, however, as from travel. He had, in fact, been riding hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded. No one else greeted him. We have waited for you, said the coroner. It is necessary to have done with this business tonight. The young man smiled. I'm sorry to have kept you, he said. I went away not to evade your summons, but to post to my newspaper an account of what I suppose I am called back to relate. The coroner smiled. The account that you posted to your newspaper, he said, differs probably from that which you will give here under oath. That, replied the other rather hotly and with a visible flush, is as you please. I used manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent. It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction. It may go as a part of my testimony under oath. But you say it is incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it is true. The coroner was silent for a time, his eyes upon the floor. The men about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently the coroner lifted his eyes and said, And we will resume the inquest. The men removed their hats. The witness was sworn. What is your name? the coroner asked. William Harker. Age? Twenty-seven. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. You were with him when he died? Oh, near him? How did that happen? Uh, your presence, I mean. I was visiting him at this place to shoot and fish. Part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd, solitary way of life. 
He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Hmm, thank you. Stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors laughed. Against a somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. Uh, relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from his breast pocket, he held it near the candle, and turning the leaves until he found the passage that he wanted, began to read. What may happen in a field of wild oats? The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail, each with a shotgun, but we only had one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by a trail through the chaparral. On the other side was comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard, at a little distance to our right and partly in front, a noise as of some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. We've started a deer, I said. I wish we'd brought a rifle. Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in readiness to aim. I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of sudden and imminent peril. Oh, come, I said. You're not going to fill up a deer with quail shot, are you? Still, he did not reply. But catching a sight of his face as he turned it slightly toward me, I was struck by the intensity of his look. Then I understood that we had serious business in hand and my first conjecture was that we had jumped a grizzly. I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were now quiet, and the sounds had ceased. But Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. What is it? What the devil is it? I asked. That damned thing! he replied, without turning his head. His voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance, moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It seemed as if stirred by a streak of wind, which not only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise. And this movement was slowly prolonging itself directly toward us. Nothing that I had ever seen had affected me so strangely as this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I am unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember, and tell it here, because singularly enough I recollected it then, that once in looking carelessly out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one of a group of larger trees at a little distance away. It looked the same size as the others, but being more distinctly and sharply defined in mass and detail, seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective, but it startled, almost terrified me. 
We so rely upon the orderly operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspension of them is noted as a menace to our safety, a warning of unthinkable calamity. So now, the apparently causeless movement of the herbage and the slow, undeviating approach of the line of disturbance were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened, and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulder and fire both barrels at the agitated grain. Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud, savage cry, a scream like that of a wild animal, and flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang away and ran swiftly from the spot. At the same time, I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke, some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony, and mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven in mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair in disorder and his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand. At least I could see none. The other arm was invisible. At times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body. It was as if he had been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All this must have occurred within a few seconds, yet in that time Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler, vanquished by superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him, and him not always distinctly. During the entire incident his shouts and curses were heard, as if through an enveloping uproar of such sounds of rage and fury as I had never heard from the throat of man or brute. For a moment only I stood irresolute. Then throwing down my gun I ran forward to my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some form of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased. But with a feeling of such terror, as even these awful events had not inspired, I now saw again the mysterious movement of the wild oats, prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostrate man toward the edge of a wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. A man, though naked, may be in rags. The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body, altogether naked and showing in the candlelight a clay-like yellow. It had, however, broad maculations of bluish-black, obviously caused by extravasated blood from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they had been beaten with a bludgeon. 
There were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved round to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief which had been passed under the chin and knotted on the top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been the throat. Some of the jurors who had risen to get a better view repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to the open window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room and from a pile of clothing produced one garment after another, each of which he held up a moment for inspection. All were torn and stiff with blood. The jurors did not make a closer inspection. They seemed rather uninterested. They had in truth seen all this before, the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony. Well, gentlemen, the coroner said, we have no more evidence, I think. Your duty has been already explained to you. If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. The foreman rose, a tall, bearded man of 60, coarsely clad. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this your last witness escape from? Harker flushed crimson again, but said nothing, and the seven jurors rose and solemnly filed out of the cabin. If you have done insulting me, sir, said Harker, as soon as he and the officer were left alone with a dead man, I suppose I am at liberty to go. Yes. Harker started to leave, but paused, with his hand on the door latch. The habit of his profession was strong in him, stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, The uh, book that you have there, I recognize it as Morgan's diary. You seem greatly interested in it. You read in it while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like... The book will cut no figure in this matter, replied the official, slipping it into his coat pocket. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury re-entered and stood about the table, on which the now-covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, which, with various degrees of effort, all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion. But some of us thinks, all the same, they had fits. An explanation from the tomb. In the diary of the late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries, having possibly a scientific value as suggestions. At the inquest upon his body, the book was not put in evidence. Possibly the coroner thought it not worthwhile to confuse the jury. The date of the first of the entries mentioned cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away. The part of the entry remaining follows. Would run in a half circle, keeping his head turned always toward the centre, and again he would stand still, barking furiously. At last he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. 
I thought at first that he had gone mad, but on returning to the house found no other alteration in his manner than what was obviously due to fear of punishment. Can a dog see with his nose? Do odours impress some cerebral centre with images of the thing that emitted them? September the 2nd. Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the ridge east of the house, I observed them successively disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at the same time, but along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree or two of the crest were blotted out. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. Oof. I don't like this. Now you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm feeling good Fly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun, you know what I mean? Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean. And this old world is a new world and a bold world for me. It's a new day, it's a new life. 